Welcome to The Story, a TVNZ podcast which takes a story that's been in the news and looks at what's behind it. I'm John Campbell. If I say school, what do you think? It it'd give you a chance. It would give you a chance at a good life if it was good. And given what you know about how our brain works, yep. are we teaching children as well as we ought to be? No. At Days Bay, Wellington, Tim and Simon Williams are about to enter the new world of Play Centre. 56 years on from that footage, what's striking is that Tim and Simon are dressed as if Prince Charles was about to join them. Mrs Williams, like the other mothers, will help supervise once a month. There's not a father in sight, and Mrs Williams appears not to have a first name. By trying this and attempting that, children learn more than grown-ups realise. The decades since have seen a revolution in the lives of our children so dramatic that little Tim and Simon could never possibly have imagined it. And there's a sense our education system and the people who give their professional lives to it are struggling under the sheer weight of trying to make it all work. I've been a principal for 25 years. Um, I've never ever found it this hard. I'm actually considering leaving the job. I I've had enough of it. Every school in West Auckland has had teachers leaving to go overseas. And, and the staffing shortage is going to really hit us next year. We're going to find that we have gaps and we don't have teachers in classrooms. When I was um, first a principal in West Auckland I'd advertise a job and I'd have 165 applicants. I advertised a management job. I've got one of the one of the best schools around, you know, and I advertised a management job with units, no applicants. None. We've got people who've come out of training college um, and it's only lasting for two years because the workload and pressures are too much. We have been underfunded, our kids are going without the supports that they need, our teachers need time to teach, our principals need time to lead and we're just not seeing the government come to the party. Those teachers and this music and the marches accompanying the band were all recorded on teacher protests over the past few months. Labour governments and teacher unions have historically been aligned, but the exhaustion, the stress, the wall hitting we heard described by those teachers speaks of issues historical ties won't solve. The government's offers have been rejected, and as one placard says, I'm not usually a sign guy, but come on, Chris. Chris Hipkins, who finds himself a new Labour government education minister on the unexpected side of industrial action, says yes, he understands this. We do have a teacher shortage, so many of the things that are being raised through this bargaining round require more teachers. We've got to make sure we've got enough teachers before we can actually agree to deliver those things. So we have to work our way through these things, and that's going to require goodwill on both sides. But education finds itself under immense pressure, big picture issues about what's being taught, what's being measured, and what skills we're equipping children with to face a fast-moving present and an uncertain future, along with nuts and bolts issues about resourcing, funding, what teachers are worth, and how much we can reasonably ask our teachers to do. 
My name is Kao Vaso and I'm the principal of Rowandale School in Manirewa. Well, it's lovely to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Carly. Hi, I'm Carly Oliveira. Um, I am a Year 1 teacher at Gladstone Primary School. I've been teaching almost 20 years. And where's Gladstone Primary School? In Mount Albert. Right, so uh, relatively central city school. Yep, and very big. We've got over 900 children in our school. Over the past week, we've been talking to teachers, principals and education experts about why both primary and secondary school teachers have voted to strike and how New Zealand's classrooms can better serve the needs of our children. My name is Martin Weatherall. I have the privilege to be principal at Langham Primary School out in Waitakere. I'm also the past president of the Waitakere Area Principals Association. OK, well, kia ora John. My name's Nathan, uh, Nathan Wallace, and I grew up in Milton, which is just south of um, Dunedin, about 50 minutes south there. Whakapapa into Ngāpui, but didn't grow up around there. Um, and I started out as a teacher, then I was a child trauma specialist, then a university lecturer. But basically I specialise in neuroscience and teaching professionals and parents and now media about um, how your brain works and how that's sort of embedded into educational research and outcomes for our kids. Nathan Wallace talked about outcomes, but there's a strong sense from teachers that their profession has become so outcome skewed, so driven by measurement, that the people running it have lost sight of less tangible and measurable goals. And in doing so, teachers say they've been put under immense pressure for insufficient reward, either in the classroom or in their pay packets. Let's return to the question we began with, which I asked Professor Welby Ings, author of Disobedient Teaching and member of the government's Education Advisory Group. If I say school, what do you think? It would give you a chance. It would give you a chance at a good life, if it was good. We know education can make a profound difference, of course, but what makes education good? The people we spoke to think they know what makes it less good. At some stage, according to Nathan Wallace, who has a master's degree in educational psychology and who lectured in human development at the University of Canterbury. Somewhere along the way, someone made the core decision that early literacy and numeracy equals success. And having decided that, we made an education system with a central imperative of getting the kids ready for the test. Don't worry about actually developing learners or lifelong learners or thinkers. Let's just get children that know the answer. And then we measured that using national standards, even with very young children. Yeah, there's a saying, it's a little rural, but, it, you know, it was, a, it was sort of round a few years ago that we spend so much time weighing the sheep we don't have time to feed it. Which will be translated from sheep to children means... We've, we've, we've developed a, a diet of reporting and so we've developed a hunger for reporting when the reporting is actually not serving the purpose. And national standards is a classic example and, of that. And it was really great that that got taken out. And many teachers wanted it taken out. Indeed, the Primary Teachers Union, the NZEI, with its 50,000 members and the New Zealand Principals Federation hated national standards so much they boycotted its official launch. And now they're gone. The national standards were abolished as soon as national were ousted from government about 14 months ago. And the teachers who wanted them gone, well... <laughs> They are taking industrial action, which confuses some people. Why now? Perhaps it's simply that the dam has finally burst. We've got a real problem with retaining teachers, attracting teachers, keeping teachers. In July, the NZEI said the country's classrooms are, and I quote, swiftly moving from a crisis to a disaster. 
In short, teachers and those who support them are talking openly about a system that's simply not keeping up and about the impact of that on teachers and on children. For 18 years as a principal, I've never had a year that's so hard to fill positions to start the next year. Um, and you know, people, people care and people really want to make a difference, but it's just too hard. We're going to end up with classrooms with no teachers. The recurring theme from protest after protest, teacher after teacher, was that a shortage of teachers, a lack of funding for teachers and support staff, means some children aren't getting the attention they deserve and need. And funnily enough, one of them was Welby Ings himself, now a PhD and university professor, but a failure at school. I didn't dance with the great gods of literacy and numeracy. And so I was, and I'm a twin. And his twin did really well. So Welby found himself in a kind of Dunedin study, except he was from the King Country and the sample size was two, him and his twin sister. But what a sample it was, same parents, same genes, same environment, same everything, but completely different experience of school and therefore message from school. So my twin sister, she was, she was glorious. You know, she, she could read and write before she went to school. She did all the right things. She knew how to put the Cuisinier rods in order. She could do all that stuff. And so the school read her intelligence and, and fed it back to her. So her intelligence was visible to her. But me and a couple of the other kids who were in the rhinoceroses group, our intelligence was invisible. It was invisible to teachers and then to ourselves. Of course, teachers are meant to notice kids like Welby and respond to them accordingly, what he calls diagnostic teaching rather than comparative teaching as enshrined in the external assessment model. And that's why I think the very best of teachers, the ones that touched my heart and the ones, the one I try to be and the one I see good teachers being, they try to carve through all that and get into the essence of somebody, and they work with that. Immediately, you think of a class of 30, mm -hmm. and some of the kids have arrived without lunch. Some of them come from homes where life is tough because there's not enough money. Uh, there might be a kid with behavioral issues for whatever reason beyond their control. And suddenly, the poor old teacher who is buggered because it's November and they've had enough of the year is thinking, I know exactly what Welby means, but I just don't have the energy to do the diagnostic today, so I'm going to work on the template I've been given. Mm -hmm. You can understand that, can't you? I, I've been, you know, I've been there. I've been a teacher. I started at 19. I'm 62 now. I devoted my life to this. Oh, yes, and add into that, it's a wet lunch hour, you know. So it all goes to hell in a handbag. And that's true because we are flawed and human beings are flawed and you have to work with that. We're not gods. And, and in putting, putting teachers on a pedestal and expecting them to solve the problems of the world relentlessly day after day is not fair. But that, said teacher after teacher on protests throughout the country, is precisely what they're being asked to do. Honestly, we're just all really overworked and stressed, and that's our main concern. It's not just about money, but in saying that, trying to attract teachers in Auckland is just, just incredibly hard. Now, all those teachers were at roadside protest meetings, grabbed interviews in a way against a background of traffic noise. Yes, like that. So to learn more with less beeping, as you heard earlier, we invited into the studio three teachers. Thank you so much for joining us. I asked them how they were getting along. Carly answered first. 
Busy. Really busy. Hard work. Really hard work. <laughs> and, and, and what is the hardest work, Carly? I think at the moment, um, after national standards, there's been a, an accumulation of workload that has ensued. And as a classroom teacher, um, just because you take uh, national standards out of the equation, it doesn't stop the workload because it's been increasing. Can I interrupt? What did national standards do? What did it mean for you as a teacher? Um, it meant that I had to make a judgment for my five-year-olds. And it, it, for me, as a teacher, it never sat well. I felt like I was crushing their little souls and telling their parents that they weren't doing well enough. When, when five-year-olds come to school, some of them are ready to be at school and some of them would rather be in the sandpit. And I had to make a judgment whether they could read and write and do maths. And for me and most junior school, school teachers, I would imagine across the board, that doesn't sit well with us. And the people on either side of you, Martin <laughs> Carl, are nodding. <laughs> Carl, you are nodding and grinning. Was that your experience too? Yeah, one of the things that National Standards forced us to do is to prepare data mm -hmm. that would uh, ultimately compare us to communities and to children that weren't the same as ours. Mm. So it was that one size fits all right across the board yeah. and that uh, hurt some teachers because they knew that they were giving their all, that they were doing their best, but what was right for little Johnny wasn't necessarily the same for Johnny down the road. Of course national standards have gone, but what remains, they say, is a sense that very different children can be compared and treated the same way. Martin Weatherall. It's this one-size-fits-all approach oh, to education. Yes. I mean, there are 2,400 primary uh, schools in New Zealand. Chris Hipkins at APPA talked about the diversity of learners mm. that we have to deal with, and yet he presides over a bureaucracy that treats every school as if it was exactly mm. the same. Which takes us back to well-beings and his belief that we're weighing the lamb rather than feeding it. I, I do not think that a five-year-old coming into school should be, and parents, should be putting on their fridge the fact that their child is in a red group five weeks after they're in to school because they're being measured against other kids. That is not the way that you grow healthy human beings. Here's Nathan Wallace. So New Zealand's really gone down a path of becoming an assessment-driven curriculum. When we introduce national standards and we're going to report on six-year-olds and their development of literacy and numeracy, even though the last 300 years of educational research has said that you develop, you do formalise literacy and numeracy in between seven and eight. Our whole education system is based on Piaget. Um, he's a you know, theorist 300 years ago. His stages of cognitive development said that at seven we enter this concrete operational stage. Um, but when you introduce assessment into the curriculum and the seven-year-olds are going to be measured and the six-year-olds are going to be measured, then the sort of natural thing is to we'll start getting them ready for that at five. So we stop meeting the needs of a five-year-old and we start preparing for the needs of a seven-year-old. And then pressure goes on to the early childhood centre. Well, hold on, they're going to be measured when they get to school in these seven-year-old behaviours when they're five. So perhaps you should be getting them ready for these seven-year-old behaviours now when they're three and four. So we see the early childhood centres interrupting, calling themselves preschool. That's a giveaway straight away that you're not meeting the needs of a kid in early childhood, but instead focused on the needs they're going to have at the next stage. So the skew, our experts say, is to the measurable. Tests, exams and how a school goes in them. I think because we look through a narrow lens. Which suits some kids just fine. Here's well-beings again. But oftentimes if you set up a regime of assessment which has got a very narrow idea of imagined descriptors and you keep triumphing, triumphing these two gods of literacy and numeracy as the great gatekeepers, that's what they become. And for people to get around those gates is actually quite a difficulty. And this brings us back to the pressure teachers feel. One, 
to perform according to those sorts of measures, but two, to also perform in areas which aren't measured, but which shape behaviour and learning ability and therefore future life and can't be left unaddressed. Nathan Wallace with just one example. When the teacher knows this kid comes from a home with domestic violence, and remember New Zealand has the highest rate of domestic violence in the developed world, so more of our kids are experiencing that than other developed countries, the kid can't be engaged in learning and literacy and numeracy and national standards or NCEA until that teacher calms his survival brain. Now, calming a child's survival brain probably isn't in the formal job description, but it's part of the job, and no one in education believes that kind of work. With children who need and deserve extra assistance and support is yet adequately funded. In part, the Ongoing Resourcing Scheme, or ORS, responds to this need. It, and I quote, provides support for students with the highest level of need for special education to join in and learn alongside other students at school. That's good. But between 2011 and 2017, the Ministry of Education received just under 10,000 applications for ORS funding, and a third of them were turned down. Funding was increased by National in 2017 and then again by Labor in May. But in the classroom, there's still a sense of playing catch-up. The thing that I think that, that scares me the most about where we are in education at the moment is that the passion for your job is no longer enough because of the workload and because of the stress and because of all of the factors that you are just being constantly given on top of, on top of, on top of. You know, um, catering for your, the diverse needs of the students within your sure. classroom. There is high health needs funding, which supports, and again I quote, students who have high health needs as a result of a significant health condition and who need additional support for more than six weeks. Again, it's a good scheme, but look at the exclusions, foremost amongst them, mental health conditions. If the child has a mental health issue that causes their behaviour to be a risk to themselves or others in the class, they are not eligible for funding. Yep. If it's a medical condition, you're good to go. But if it's a mental health issue, ASD, ADHD, yep. you are not funded. You are specifically excluded. So what do teachers want? More classroom support for children who need it and deserve it. Those children are bouncing off the walls of our classrooms. And our teachers are stressed out because yeah. of it. So in our shared space, we've got four children diagnosed with ASD. We've got two more that are undergoing paediatric assessment. And none of those children have any funding. They have some, some an hour here or there because we were at our wits end. And that's over four children, possibly six. Yeah. And these are five-year-olds. Are they falling through the cracks already? Absolutely. And in my community, we, we don't come from, um, well, decile 1A, so the, the amount of money that's surplus in the community is, is, is mm. quite limited. Mm. So the amount of undiagnosed children oh, we yes. have in our community. Mm. And if children aren't diagnosed, they have little to no chance of getting support unless it's by luck, basically. And so the classroom is best suited for children for whom participation is easy, learning is easy, and literacy and numeracy are their thing. And unsurprisingly, it's not just teachers who are concerned about that. What were you doing last night? Last night I was in Hamilton. I love Hamilton because they're so supportive in Hamilton. Like, How many Hamiltonians turned out to see you last night? About 1,500 Hamilton parents come along. It was the second one I'd done. About 1,500 come along the first time a few weeks ago to learn about the infant brain. And this time it was more sort of 8 to 22 year olds.
Nathan Wallace speaks to parents trying to better understand the way their child's brain works. What do they most want to know from Nathan? What can we know about our children that most empowers our children to reach their full potential? Parents, you know, really love their kids. Um, teachers usually love their kids and want the kids to reach their full potential as well. So they're all one and the same thing, you know, to do the best by the children that they are either teaching or, because um, a lot of teachers come along, or parenting. Mm. How are teachers going in this country, do you think? I think teachers in this country are amazing, you know, because they do save people's lives all of the time. They, I had teachers, though I wouldn't be here without teachers. I had amazing teachers in my life that, you know, um, I mean, one of my teachers was my foster parent in the last couple of years of school that, you know, sort of went against everyone else's advice and nurtured me through that last two years to make sure that I go to university. Um, so I don't want to be involved in dissing teachers in, in any way, but I think the structures that support teachers have not been good. I think a lot of teachers are unhappy, and it's not just about money. They're under a huge amount of pressure, and I think it must be frustrating, especially if you're working in the early years at school. Wellbeings is possibly beyond frustration now. He thinks we've been letting our children down by institutionalising a belief that tests matter and therefore what can easily be tested matters and what can't be tested is somehow less important, somehow soft. It is not soft to grow people who are self-actualised, who are able to work without comparing themselves to other people. No, they're not driven by comparing themselves. They, uh, they are confident. They have high levels of inquiry. That is not soft. Those things that are called soft skills are not soft skills. They are the survival skills that make us able to function in the world. And this is where well-beings and Nathan Wallace depart most singularly from the comparative model of testing, measuring, comparing. If what we're doing is growing kids who pass exams, who simply remember things, are we growing creative, resilient, independent, adaptive minds? Because Nathan Wallace says in order to cope in a rapidly changing world, we should be. So, you talk about mindfulness, mm -hmm. and there are going to be some people who are listening to this or watching this who are going to be saying, what a lot of hippie shit. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I might have said the same thing 10 years ago when there wasn't the evidence base to back it up. So, they're going to say, it's the three R's, yeah. and NCA's rubbish, yeah. and we should all be doing Cambridge exams, and the only right. thing that matters is the mark. So, what is your response to that? It is the three R's. It's relationship, relationship, relationship. Um, because if you look at the research, the pure hard data, there is very clearly one that stands out as the number one factor that influences what the kids' academic and social outcomes are from the class. Out of every single thing that we can measure, teacher ratio and teacher qualifications and parent incomes, and there is one thing that stands out as the number one factor, and that's the quality of the relationship with the teacher. And that leads us back to where we began this podcast, the protesting teachers and their sense of being under such pressure that it's juggling they're doing first and foremost. Relationships are for people who have time. Forgive the drum punning, but teachers are marching to the same beat. Sorry, loudly. The government's made historically generous offers and been rejected resoundingly. Listen for yourselves, this isn't a hall full of people who are equivocating. Why are teachers striking after just one year of a Labour government? Well, perhaps because more and more of them don't feel they've terribly much to lose. 
may not be what New Zealand wants to hear, but teachers work harder than most other professions. They, um, they're on all the time. You've got 30 kids in front of you um, for six hours a day, and then all of your planning and your professional development and your ongoing reading and your supervision, your everything else fits outside of that. So this perception that you've got lots of holidays and time off is just you know, not really the case. The, the reality is teachers do work harder for them a lot of, not everyone, you know, but there at the high you can work a lot easier job and finish a lot earlier and be under a lot less stress, a lot less pressure and a lot less criticism and a lot more money just going out into the private sector. I've got so many friends that have taken eight months off teaching or something just because, you know, they've got like a physical injury or something and just don't feel like they can keep up with the kids. So go and get an office job and they just don't go back because when they realise how much easier life is and you get more money for such an easier job, so I think we need to value teaching more and just recognise what good teachers we do have by international standards. We're lucky in New Zealand, we do have high quality teachers. I think we need to look after them a bit better. That was The Story, a TVNZ podcast produced by Erica Wood and Julie Clothier, shot and edited by Justin Moore. I'm John Campbell. Thank you for joining us.